You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 40 of Tax Talks. This is Heidi Robson. Should personal insurance be held inside or outside of super? I asked Danny Mikhail of Partners Wealth Group in Sydney whether he can help us with this. My first question to Daniel is whether the changes to the super contribution caps affect how we should structure personal insurance. Here's his answer. They certainly do. With the reduction in caps now to $25,000 per annum, particularly on the concessional side, for those who have insurances within super and they're claiming a deduction on those contributions into super to fund those insurance premiums, for those clients who have large premiums, for large premiums inside super, the I guess the cap in effect limits the amount that you can get into super to fund those premiums. So for those clients who have insurance premiums above and beyond $25,000, they have to use other means to then fund those insurance mm. premiums, and that can be in the form of non-concessional contributions. But nobody would have an insurance premium that exceeds 25000 It just means that they can contribute less in addition to the premium. Yeah. Or, well, or, or have you seen clients who have a $25,000? You know, I, I have seen clients who have wow. premiums in excess of $25,000. So, for instance, if you had a situation where you have a life insurance policy held through a super and let's say the premium was $30,000, what, what you'd previously be, be able to do is make a contribution of $30,000 into super, claim a tax, tax deduction on, on that, and that 30 grand would be used to then p- pay the insurance premium. Which would then be another tax deduction, wouldn't it? Correct. Correct. Mm. That's right. And actually, I have to correct myself, $25,000 or $30,000 premiums are actually not that unusual. Well, particularly if you're funding life TBD and income protection exactly. all in super, you know, obviously, if you're insuring large sums, then it's it's not hard to get to those sort yes. of premiums. Yeah, you're right. Um, so it's mainly for the top end. I just realised that we <laughs> that we pay far more than that ourselves. You know, yeah, so. yeah, that's right. And, and, and I guess the other effect there is if you've got a twenty five k cap now, if ten k of that is being absorbed in insurance premiums, that only allows you to contribute up to fifteen k to make up the balance of the concessional contributions cap. So it just limits your ability to put in additional contributions into super now that you've got that reduction in the cap. Yeah. Whereas previously, if your cap was 30 and your 10 was used as insurance premium or being absorbed as as part of your insurance premiums, you only had tw- you could use 20 to contribute, make additional contributions into super. So certainly, the, the reduction in the caps is having an effect on both what not only the ability of, of how much you can contribute into super, but also the insurance premiums that you're able to fund through the superannuation environment. Let's say just hypothetically the insurance premiums were 50000 yep. for one member. Then I could only contribute twenty five. so the insurance premiums would eat into the Correct. super. Correct, yeah, unless, of course, you make non-concessionals above and beyond to make yeah. up that difference. And I think that's why there is so much discussion now around life insurances in super because I think a lot of people had their balances being eaten away. Yep. By those insurance that's premiums. That's right. That's right. I mean, we'll, we, we would generally advise, particularly with income protection, to hold it outside super because, one, you get a, a larger tax deduction generally because the tax deduction in super is only limited to 15%, whereas outside super, it's at your marginal rate that you're getting the tax deduction at. 
and generally your marginal rate is higher than the 15% rate. So generally we would advise people to hold that outside super unless, of course, if cash flow is an issue, then we, we would then advise to then hold it inside super. You would only hold income protection inside super yep. if otherwise you wouldn't be able to pay it outside of super. Correct. 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 That's exactly right. Yep. Yep. With the other three being life, TPD yep. and trauma, those ones are tax deductible inside of super but not outside of super. Hence, there is an argument to hold them inside well, of super. Well, life and TPD, life and TPD, any occupation is can be held inside super and is tax deductible to the super fund. The trauma insurance or critical illness, as, as it uh, can be otherwise known as, must be held outside super. You've got no choice now. So life and TPD, any can be held inside super. There is the own occupation TPD, which is a different form of total and permanent disablement cover. That doesn't meet the CIS requirements. requirements, and therefore that must be held outside of super. Now, there is a way where you can, most product providers out there have a super-linked product where basically you have the any occupation policy inside super, tax deductible inside the fund, and effectively own occupation, which is the bolt-on, if you like, sitting outside super. And generally the premium split is roughly a 60 to 70% of that. The own occupation. Uh, no, it would be any occupation paid for in super and the smaller component being the own occupation sits outside super. Oh, really? That surprises me that the premium is so much less for own occupation than any occupation. No, in terms of the split of the total oh, premium. Okay. So if, you, if your total premium is $100, $60 of that would be paid inside super under the, and that's the inio, that represents the any occupation component sitting inside super. And the other $40 the member would have to pay personally, and that represents the own occupation policy. What happens at claim time? You don't have two policies, you have one policy with two different components. What happens at claim time is they assess you under the any definition first. If you don't qualify for that, then they then assess you under the own, and you get paid out on the own out on the own occupation policy. Yes, right. and it's much harder to qualify. For the any. For the end. Correct. Yeah, the any is always harder. Uh, yeah, much harder. Yeah, correct. Because it's not. Basically, you need to be completely unconscious. That's right. And it's not occupation specific. And the classic example I always use with all my clients is the case of a dentist. If they lose their hand, one of their hands, they can't operate in their, their own occupation. They can still do something else. So if they had an any, an any occupation definition within there, they wouldn't qualify. They wouldn't qualify because they can mm. still do something. They can still do lecturing in dentistry or or some other form of work, but they can't do their own occupation. So under the any, they would not qualify. Under the young, they most certainly will qualify. Even with a quadriplegic, one could argue, you know, yes, you can't move your legs, you can't move your arms, yep. but you can still talk. Hence, you could work in a in yeah. a call center. Potentially, so yeah. In my in my mind. People almost never qualify for oh, any look, because if you, you if, have to be basically yeah, unconscious not yeah. to qualify. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the statistics. claim statistics on any occupation, they're very uh, small. Very small in terms of what actually gets through. Whereas own is a lot higher, and that's because purely it's, it's occupation specific, so yes. it's more tailored to what the client. Yeah, that's why I'm so surprised that the premium is split sixty forty, or is that just for purposes of allocating it to the fund or outside? Yeah, the fund? It, it, it's it's an allocation because to represent the actual cost. Yeah, would be sixty forty. The actual cost would be seventy thirty. That's yeah. When you look at it that way, yes. But in terms of because effectively the in occupation component makes up the bulk of it, and really it's the own occupation which is the add on, which represents the smaller component of the overall makeup of the TPD. 
And the product providers have sort of, every product provider splits it differently. They're not all consistent. So, for instance, Tell, which is a product provider we use, I believe their split is 70-30. If you look at one path, yeah, I think they're 60-40. So they all have different splits as to what component of the premium is payable inside super and what component is paid outside super. So they're all very different in that regard. So income protection you could have inside of super, but it doesn't make sense unless you have cash flow issues. Correct. Trauma you or critical illness, you have to hold, you have outside, to hold outside super. super. Correct. TPD, yep. you can only hold inside super for any occupation, Correct. but for your own occupation, you have to hold it outside of super. That component has to be held outside. Yes. Yep. Yep. And life? Life can be held outside or inside super. But inside of super, tax are tax deductible and outside yep. not. So it would make sense to hold life inside of super. Not always. From a tax deductibility point of view, yes. However, you've got to consider what happens on death. So if it's being paid to someone who's non-dependent, then you pay tax on it. Then you pay tax on it. Then becomes an untaxed component, which is taxed at even at even higher rate. So you've got to be careful of the tax consequences when the benefit is actually released out of superannuation to people who are non-dependent. So what we would normally do is, if people do have someone who's financially dependent on the deceased, sure we would we would structure the life cover inside super because it makes sense. They get the tax deductibility. There's no tax consequences on the way out. No problem. If there's no dependents, then generally speaking, we would look at putting the holding the cover out outside so to eliminate or avoid those tax consequences on the way out. Okay. But if somebody is married, yep. they would always have a dependent. Correct. Correct. And if somebody has children under the age of age of eighteen, Correct. they would also always That's have right. a dependent. So, so so long as you've got someone who's dependent on you, no problem. But in cases where the whole family yeah. disappears. Correct. Or they're single, then yeah, you've got to consider what the tax consequences might be once those benefits are released out of super. There are a number of ways you can structure income protection. We've sort of gone over those briefly. So one is inside super, the other is completely outside super. So we're, we're client and, and the insurance policy, the income protection policies inside super, they are they tend to be very basic policies because they have to satisfy all the assist regulations. So there are quite a few limitations on um, the income protection products that you can hold okay, in which, super. Which are? One is if you're unemployed at the time of claim, you actually don't receive a benefit. Even if you have an agreed value? Even if you have an agreed value, yeah. Even if you have an agreed value. So, if yeah, if you're unemployed at the time of claim, you actually don't receive a benefit. The other limitation is with income protection policies inside super, they can only look at 12 months pre-disability earnings, all right? So what that means is, you know, let's say you've got someone who is self-employed. In the 12 months leading up to the claim, they're earning, you know, let's call it $70,000, when typically in the in the previous two years they were earning, let's say, 100. okay? Because with the policies inside super, they only look back 12 months and no longer than 12 months, they're going to base the claim on, the year that the latest year of earnings, which is in this case seventy thousand dollars, rather than the hundred. But that can also work in the favour of the insured if the business has gone up. Sure, in the last that's right. Month. Yeah, that, that can work in their favour. Remember, you can you can only get paid up to your sum insured. You can never get paid more. So if your if your income has gone up, then what people should be doing is reviewing their cover to make sh- so that it's in line with their current income. 
Otherwise, if you don't, then you're capped at receiving whatever you're insured for. So there's a huge risk that you pay high premiums for a certain insured value and then at the time of claim you actually receive less yep. than you paid you paid for X amount, but mm. you're not actually getting that amount when you go to claim. And that and that's why whenever we try to put in place policies for clients, we're trying to create the right expectations. So if you're paying for something, clients are of the, of the understanding that they're going to get that when they make a claim. So with policies inside super, it can be a bit misleading because you're paying for something that you may not necessarily get because they're looking at only a 12-month window of your earnings and this mainly affects self-employed people. I mean, for, for people who are employed, their income is fairly consistent from year to year. And generally, you know, if that's the case, then your last 12 months earnings are typically going to be very similar to the last three years. So not so much of an issue for, for employees, but for, for self-employed people where there is variability in their incomes, and if they have a, a poor year leading up to claim, then they could potentially receive less than what they're insured for. So, which can obviously, um, you know, have mm. consequences, so financial my, consequences for the clients. So, my gut feeling is basically always have income protection outside of super. Yeah. So have, because uh, it's complicated inside of super. It, it, it's there are significant limitations. Mm. Um, so the policies are definitely a lot weaker inside super. What product providers have come out and done is what so effectively done it the way in similar to how the TPD is structured, in that they have the basic income protection sitting on inside super and all your ancillary benefits sitting outside super. So the, so the components or the features and benefits that don't meet the CIS regulations sit outside super and all the, the features and benefits that do meet the CIS regulations sit inside super. So it's one policy split into two components with the majority of the premium again funded inside super and a small component paid by the, the member directly. And this is what they refer to as split contract or so, does uh, it? Yeah, so it's called it's called a super-linked policy. That tends to be the term that's used in the industry, and that's basically to represent that, you know, part of the – you've got a policy inside super and it's linked to a policy outside. It, it, it's essentially one policy split into two, again, with the components that are allowed to be held within super inside super and the components that are not allowed to be held within the superannuation environment to or, sit outside. Or don't or that don't make sense yep. to be held inside of super. Yeah, correct, correct, correct. And that so with with that sort of policy you're in a, you can hold an agreed value contract which allows you to lock in the sum insured. And what essentially that means is regardless of what your income is at the time of claim, you've already provided all the financial evidence to substantiate your income upfront at the time of application. So regardless of what your income is at the time of claim, they will honor that benefit a claim time. Uh, so self-employed self-employed people should basically always have this super linked policy. It, Either hold it outside of super or, or have a or super linked yeah, policy. Yeah. That that would be the next best option would be have the to have the super linked option. Yeah. Yeah. As I said, we, we would generally discourage people from holding it inside super. Uh, one because it's eating into their balance, unless of course they're making additional contributions to make up for it. And two, the, the policies are inferior to what you can get compared to the super linked option or the policy held held completely in your own, own name. So the policy held in completely by the member or the super link, they're virtually the same. So the insurance providers have all come up with a clever way to effectively design a non-superannuation policy by you know by, by funding it part of it inside super, part outside super. Yeah. 
and that and that's purely for people who don't want to fund it completely in their personal names. For those policies where you've taken out an income protection inside super um, pre one July two thousand and fourteen. If you were insured for, say, an agreed value of, let's say, $5,000 per month, and let's say you make a claim, the client makes a claim, and their pre-disability income in the, pre- in the previous 12 months was $4,000. So what would happen in that situation is the insurer would honour the claim and pay out the $5,000. Even though it's more than it's, the pre-disability. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So the, in the insurance, the insurance provider would honour the contract and pay the five. However, the trustee can only release $4,000 to the member because their pre-disability income was $4,000, not five. Ah, so the issue regarding agreed value, etc. Yep. It's not actually that the insurance company will pay less. It is that the trustee Correct. can't distribute Correct. all of it. Oh, okay. So the insurance company always pays the agreed value, even if the pre-event income has been less than the agreed value. In this case, yes. All right. So with, with pre-1 July 14 contracts, they will honour the five. However, they can only release four with the other $1,000 being stuck in, super. stuck in super until they meet another condition of release. Oh, I see. So something changed on the 1st of July 2014, yep. and after the 1st of July 2014, the insurance company no longer has to honour the agreed value yep. if the actual earnings are less. Well, I'll show you what happens under, under okay. a post-1 July 2014 contract. So, again, same sum insured. They're insured for $5,000. Their pre-disability income is $4,000. The insurer is only required to pay $4,000. The other $1,000 doesn't get paid out by the insurer. And that's the big change from 1 July 14 onwards. Whereas under the Superlink policy, which I alluded to earlier, if they're insured for five, the trustee would release four to the member and then the non-superannuation component of the policy would pay out the $1,000 directly to the member. Still got their five. They've paid, they've paid for a $5,000 per month policy. They're going to, they're going to receive uh, $5,000 per month from the insurance provider via two channels, one via the super trustee and one directly uh, from the insurer. So it's something that people need to be wary of because a lot of people will have cover inside super and if they've got an agreed value and, and they're thinking that they will get $5,000 per month, assuming that's the value that they've insured, if their pre-disability pre income doesn't stack up at claim time or, or 12 months leading up to or prior to the claim, I should say, then they may not receive the full benefit that they've been paying for. And that's, and that's a real concern. The second scenario you went through, I think, is the worst one where we have a post 1st of July 2014 policy yep. without a, a super link and the member pays premiums on the 5,000 benefit, but actually only receives 4,000. Four. I think that's worse than the first scenario where the insurance honors the 5,000, but 1,000 gets stuck in, in super. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, they will, they will as, eventually get it at exactly, some point. Exactly. So um, I think but, that's not as bad. What's no, really that's bad right. It's the um, post-2014 policy Correct. without the super. Correct. Link. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're paying for five, but they're not getting five. And Effectively, the insurance keeps the one thousand. It doesn't get released to the member mm. um, because it doesn't meet the CIS regulations. So, has that increased the profit line of, of the insurance <laughs> company? This little, um, this little glitch. Yes. Well, uh, it must have. Oh, I, I assume it does because ultimately, people are, are paying for something that 
they're, you, they're not necessarily getting. So, and and I said, I, I that's why I'd always discourage people to hold, particularly income protection inside super, solely inside super. You know, you're much better off adopting the or using the super linked option. That way, you don't get caught out by these these things. It's a much stronger policy, and your ability to get the full benefit is is greater than holding a policy um, that's just owned by uh, you know that's that solely sits within super. When I leapt from the accounting world into the financial planning world and became a financial planner eventually, the, the way I started was mainly doing insurance. Mm. So, um, but correct me if I'm wrong. Mm. I don't have the feeling that the majority of financial planners are really across insurance. I don't think many financial planners are across insurance unless they only do insurance and they're basically an insurance broker. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, within our business, we have people that just specialise in insurance, and and all they do is the personal insurance. Myself, I do a combination of traditional financial planning and personal insurance. I think. You know, for most of our clients, personal insurance forms part of the overall plan. Uh, you need to have that risk management plan in place just in case, you know, whether death, disability or a serious illness occurs, you want to make sure that the client's going to still achieve their goals and objectives that they've set out to achieve and to make sure that the strategies that we've put in place are not disrupted by either death, disability or a serious illness. So that's what the risk management strategy is for. So we want to make sure that the income is going to continue, you know, the debt's paid off, you know, all those sort of things that are taken care of so it doesn't disrupt what we're looking to achieve for the client in the event of those uh, events occurring. Do you have insurance brokers in your company? Or do, is it more that you identify what you need and then you contact an insurance broker? We identify what we, we go through the thorough needs analysis with the client. Depending on their individual circumstances, we'll help them uncover what they need by way of types and levels of cover, then we start to talk about the different options that they can select within each type of product, that, you know, it's premium structure, agreed versus indemnity, all those sort of things. So we have that discussion with our clients and then once we've determined what they need, we will then go and broker the market. And effectively, we've got, you know, the tools available to look amongst the different product providers out there. There are roughly 10 or 11 product providers that we would use and, you know, they all have different features and benefits and are priced differently. Some have sweet spots in terms of certain age groups or certain occupations. So we would, you know, target the insurance provider that provides the best value for money for our clients. Mm. That's essentially what we're looking for, yeah. So you go directly to the product? Yep, directly to the product provider. I see. So you basically fulfill the role of, a, of an insurance broker? Correct, yeah, mm. yeah, as, as well as the advice component. So do you have an... Does one need to have a broker license to do that? Well, you need to have or an the, AFSL. Okay, yeah, it's covered yeah, by an AFSL. Yeah, correct. Yeah, AFSL yeah, license. Okay. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, we're required to pr- produce a statement of advice when we're providing insurance recommendations to our clients. So, you know, our process is to complete a fact find and know your client and get to understand the client and, and then identify what their needs are. And from there, we then obviously discuss the levels of cover and pricing to see how that fits within their budget. And the next step would then to formalise those recommendations in the form of a statement of advice. And that would contain all the, you know, the nitty-gritty information that the client needs to know to make an informed decision. And then once they've accepted the recommendations, we then go and 
apply for the recommended cover or help them apply for the recommended cover. Okay. And is there such a thing as a broker license or there's basically just an AFS yeah, license? Yeah, you, you need it. Yeah, because it falls broker. under, because insurance falls under financial advice or personal insurance falls under financial advice, we need to take them through the financial advice process and that involves producing a statement of advice when we're, whenever we're giving them a recommendation Okay, yep. so there's no separate broker license. It's no. just an AFS license. A- AFS is it the same as a mortgage broker? Is there? Is it also just that they have an AFS license, or is there a separate mortgage broker license? Separate mortgage broker okay. license. Yeah. So with mortgage yep. brokers, it's different. Yeah. But with insurance brokers, it's just covered under the a- AFS a- a- license. Yeah. Correct. Oh, okay. Yeah. Exactly right. Yep. You mentioned agreed versus indemnity yep. before. All right. So in relation to agreed versus indemnity. So when you're taking out an income protection policy, you have the option at at, at application stage, so when you're applying for the cover, to take out an agreed or indemnity contract. Now, what do they mean? So an indemnity basically means that you tell the insurance company what you're earning. You don't need to provide any financial evidence such as tax returns or financials or anything like that to substantiate what you've told them that you're earning. What happens at claim time is they will then ask for those financials at claim time. Now, if you can produce financials at claim time that sub- and that substantiates what you're earning at the time of claim time, no problem. If your income is is less, then obviously you will get paid on based on what your income is at the time of claim. Okay, an agreed value contract is basically where you provide financials and tax returns upfront, so at application stage, and that essentially locks in the sum insured. So that regardless of what your income is at the time of claim, so if you if your income's hypothetically gone down for whatever reason, it's been disruption to your business or whatever, the insurance company ignores that, and they pay based on what's already been set. It's effectively, if I can use the analogy like a car insurance policy where you've got agreed or market value. So agreed is locked in. You know what you're going to get if if your car's a write-off. This is no different in that it's agreed between you and the insurer what you're going to get paid at claim time, assuming you satisfy all the other requirements, of course. Assuming it's outside of super. Assuming it's outside of super as well. Yeah, yeah. So you can only get these days an agreed value contract outside of super. I see. So the insurance won't even do an agreed value inside of super. Well, agreed, even if you did, it would... uh, It, It would revert back to an indemnity. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it, it, they would only look at the, the they, they can't pay out more than what your predisability earnings are. Hmm. So whilst you, you're paying for, most insurance providers don't offer an agreed value contract inside super. It's always indemnity. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. That's, that's fair of them. Yeah. Then. Yeah. Yeah. Because otherwise, you know, on that example I gave earlier, if you're insured for five but you're only earning four, well, regardless of whether you've got an agreed value contract or not, you're only going to get four. So in my view, it's no point paying for an agreed value contract inside super when they're only going to pay four anyway, assuming you're earning four. So, yeah, so for, and typically what we would do with an agreed value contract or so for people who are self-employed where there is variability in your income, we would look at their last two income years. And if they've been two fairly consistent, fairly good years, then we would lock them in on, a, on an agreed value contract. If there have been two years where they've been pretty ordinary and the, and the business is likely to improve over the next, let's say, two or three years, then what we would probably do is put them on an indemnity in, initially with the view of transitioning them onto a, an agreed once they've got two years' worth of solid financials because there's no point locking in two years which have been below average, if I can use that. We would rather lock in two years 
because they take the average of the last two years typically. We would rather lock in two consecutive good years rather than two consecutive subpar years. Because for the agreed value, they ask for proof. They ask for proof. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. So if a client's consistently earned $100,000 over the last two years and that's been fairly consistent, then you would lock in an agreed value contract. No problem. But if over the last two years, let's say the... The The business has struggled. The business has struggled. They've only earned $50,000 and they know that their business is turning a corner and they're likely to do $100,000 in the next two years. Well, it'd be silly to lock in an agreed value contract because under an indemnity, you'd you'd easily be able to justify the income or substantiate the income moving forward because you know your business is going to do better in the next two years. So, If no, you want to hire cover, people might want a lower cover because then they pay less premium. Well, that's true. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Now, you do generally pay, you, you do pay for an agreed value contract. It's, it doesn't come for nothing because effectively the insurance company is taking on the risk because they're insuring you for X amount and you may not be earning that, that amount at claim time, so they're taking on that risk and therefore they price that into an agreed value contract. So typically it's 15 to 20% more. On premium, but it provides the client with the certainty uh, that this is what they're going to get at claim time, whereas the indemnity doesn't. That's and that's the, probably the key difference between the two. I mean, so sometimes the decline in income may have been a result of failing health. Failing health. Some people don't want to jump on a claim straight away because they don't want to. They soldier on. Yeah, they soldier on because they've got a business to run. Now, they might get to a point where it gets all too much and then they want to go on claim. And by that stage, their income has declined so much. And what that means is if they're on an indemnity contract, well, the insurance company is looking back. In the case of policy held inside super, they're looking back 12 months and that 12 months may not be as great as the preceding two years. Uh, or the previous two years. So that's with policies inside super. With indemnity policies outside super, they will look back at the last two financial years and some providers will even look back at three financial years prior to claim. And we would tend to use providers that look back three And then do they take the average of all three? No, they take the the best of the three. Hmm. So they will look at the last three financial years and whichever year represents the best financial year in terms of income, they will pick that year and pay it based out on that. On that, so that to us is a, what to me is a, is a strong indemnity policy. It's not as good as an agreed because it doesn't provide one hundred percent certainty, but what an indemnity contract that looks back three is compared to one that looks back one year, which is the case inside super, is far stronger because your window is is a lot is a lot a lot wider than mm. what what it would be inside super. Mm. Yeah. How do clients? compensate you do you do a fee for service or are you based on commission uh typically if it's insurance only we get remunerated from the product provider in the form of commission so that's typically how we would get remunerated in some cases we we might do a do it on a fee for service basis not all the time it's just a case by case but yeah typically we would do it as, as commission from the insurance provider My final advice is I would strongly encourage accountants to look at their clients, particularly their income protection policies, and in particular those that are held just inside service. So policies that are held within industry funds, people tend to take up the default cover, and that's all income protection sitting inside their superannuation funds 
and in most cases they're not aware of the limitations of that cover and and it only becomes a problem when they need to claim on it so we would encourage those clients to move away from those sort of products inside you know that are solely held with inside super to a more of a super linked arrangement if cash flow is an issue and what you can do these days is is have your existing super fund still pay for the component that's that's sitting sitting inside super so if someone wants to still hang on to their industry fund that's fine they can still do that take out an income protection super linked arrangement and for the component that needs to be paid out of super, that, that can still come out of their industry fund or their retail fund or even their self-managed super fund. It, it doesn't have to, they don't have to switch super funds to achieve this new, to achieve this arrangement. Welcome back. So income protection policies inside of super can be an issue in that our clients might be paying for cover they will never get under their current circumstances. In the next episode, episode 41, Tom Sargent, the Feeds Operations Manager of Class, will talk about bank and data feeds. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.